And um, James is toward the back of your Bible. If you go all the way in the back, if you have an app, uh, then it's just spelled like the name, James. And so you can just look on your little tab in your app and look that up. Um, but we're going to go to James chapter 1. James is a very short book, but it's a rich book. It's a very rich book. I just returned um, from a two-night river camping trip. Um, so if I look a little bit stiff when I move, it's because I'm very, very sore. Uh, two friends and I loaded our kayaks with all the camping gear that we would need, and we paddled downriver over two nights in Florida, and we did around 30 miles in that two-day period. And so, yeah, we covered some water. Now, I'm going to tell you, honestly, the second day was the struggle. That was the real struggle because we had to paddle 18 miles from our first night's camping place to get to the second campsite, and you know, we wanted to get there before it got dark, especially since the river we were on had a number of alligators that we passed. Uh, so 18 miles of paddling. Now, if you don't know about uh, paddling, kayaking, that 18 miles, that's, that's, that's pretty long. I'll just tell you from experience, this past experience, it's pretty long. It's very long. Going into this trip, I was thinking, you know, paddling down river, that's really no big deal. I've paddled on lakes, and on a lake, as I like kayak fishing on a lake, the hardest part is if it's a real windy day, because sometimes you find yourself struggling against the wind. So I thought, you know, going down river, that'll be pretty simple. I mean, you're flowing with the direction of the water. It's, it's no big deal. We're just going to relax on the water and paddle. It'll, it'll be nothing. I was surprised, though. I was surprised by the nuances and character of the river and what I experienced. I was surprised by some of the difficult parts because what would happen is I would be going pretty fast down the river and then I would come to a certain area and maybe into a turn or something and immediately I'd lose all of the forward momentum I had built up and my kayak would almost come to a standstill which is almost impossible to believe. And I noticed when you're that close on the water, there are certain things you notice about the top of the current. There were spots where the water would be rushing right into it, and then all of a sudden it would just flatten and would be dead, and almost some, sometimes it would be rolling back off, creating a well. And whenever you would hit those spots, it, it would just grind you to a halt, and you quit making any progress whatsoever. I was surprised sometimes because I'd be going into a turn and I thought I had the turn perfectly lined up and then all of a sudden my kayak would be taken off course and I'd be drug away. Even though I had been paddling hard, moving, it was just like immediately my kayak would start drifting a certain direction. One particular time we came around a corner, I got hung in that corner and just kind of rotated, just kept rotating. Kayak wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, for the first day, it was, I, we would get into those and I would just dig in, just dig deep and paddle as hard as I could to try and get out of that dead water. Struggling to get forward momentum. 
And there were other times that if I had stopped paddling, I would have been taken back upriver a little bit because of the flow of the current. Sometimes the current of the river would mess with what I was trying to accomplish. It got me thinking about how life can be. We experience trials of struggle. We come into seasons with momentum and then we, we get stopped or we get turned around or we get pushed back or there's just so many things that can happen. And it got me thinking about trials. What purpose do they play in our lives? And no doubt, many of us, we found ourselves in a trial. We ask ourselves, what is the purpose in this? How should we see trials? How should we navigate trials in life? How should we handle setbacks, turnarounds, and course redirection? How do we navigate life's trials? So I want to be preaching under this title today, Getting Through Trials, What to Change. Getting Through Trials, What to Change. This will be a little bit different than I normally preach, uh, and it may be shorter. Uh, But I feel like there's a very important thing someone needs to hear today and what I'm going to preach. I feel like it's going to connect with someone. So what needs to change so that I benefit from the trials of life? James chapter 1 has a lot of things to say about dealing with trials. The first thing that I notice in James chapter 1 that needs to change is how you view your trial. It's about a perspective change. Many people think that trials are brought by the devil. How many of us have ever said, you know, the devil's fighting me. And that can be true. It it really can be true. You can come under attack of the enemy. But every time that we have a hard time, does not always mean that the devil is attacking us. And it does not always mean the enemy is on the attack. Because here's the truth. Whether your trial is because the enemy has attacked, because God has allowed it, or because life has brought it to you, Those things really do not matter. What does matter is that you trust God in the middle of that trial. And if you only see every negative life event as an attack from the enemy and not being allowed by God, and that's just a subtle difference. It could be the enemy attacking you, but the truth is it's allowed by God. You limit your chance if you only see it that way. You limit your chance of gaining what God intends for you to gain. Because you just see everything as an outside thing coming at you. When God's trying to allow something outside, some force, to change something within you. James 1 and 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now that's a very striking thing to say. Hey, whenever you get into a trial, when you get into a struggle, I want you to count that as joy. I want you to enjoy the season that you're in. Perceive your trials with all joy. James did not group trials into different segments. That's what I notice here. He doesn't say, now, when the devil attacks you, you get upset about that. And when the Lord allows something to happen to you, you get joy in that. 
And when life brings these things at you, you respond differently. He said various trials. He said every kind of trial. You count all of it as joy. You count it as something to be delighted about. So he didn't group trials into different segments. He said, uh, you know, he wasn't saying this is a trial to get excited about. This is a trial to be worried about. This is a trial to question God about. He said, whatever the trial is, you just count it as joy. And that word various trials, where he says various trials, it means spotted. It means multicolored. He's saying diverse. Every diverse kind of trial that comes your way, you count it as joy of all kinds of trials. And he refers to tests of faith. That's what he's referring to. He's not talking about temptation. And there's a big thing you need to understand about the difference between temptations and trials. Choosing to sin when tempted, that's a flesh issue. And the only response is to get your flesh under control and resist the devil. He says as much later in James chapter 4, 7, and 8. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, that's repentance, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. We're going to talk about double-minded in just a minute. But there's a big difference between a trial and a temptation. Trials happen. Trials happen to the righteous and they happen to the unrighteous. They happen to everyone under the sun as long as they are breathing. And that's only because we don't know what exactly is all on the other side. There could be trials on the other side. I highly doubt it. Scripture doesn't indicate that. But we only know the here and now. And he says all of these trials, you count them as all joy. So why should my perspective change? Why should I look at trial and suffering in my life, things that happen in my life, why should I look at them different? Because of this. If God is sovereign and if God is involved in every facet of your life, from the rising up in the morning till you get in the bed at night, tired from working and slaving all day. If God's involved in every part of that life, every point of your life, then even to your most painful experiences in life, there are inherently part of life that is to be lived in a world cursed with sin and working through them is God for our good. That's why. Because God is working in everything. Romans 8, 28, Paul said as much. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So how can James tell us to count it all joy? Simply because God is working in the middle of the mess in your life. That's why. If God is working in the middle of the mess then you should have some joy in that. You should have some delight because he's taking that mess and that struggle and that trial and some way he's taking and turning and manipulating it into a thing that is going to benefit you and is going to be bringing glory to God and will do something for your good. Count all of it joy when you fall into various trials. 
goes on in James 1 and 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He's saying knowing, knowing that what you're going through is producing something in you. That's knowing that God is in the middle of it. God is working right where you're at. God is working right in the trial. Because here's the reality. Faith that is never tested is faith that is never proven. Faith that is never tested is faith that is never proven. How do you know you have faith? It's whenever you find yourself in the trial and how you respond to it and react to it. That's how you really know. It's simple to sit back and say, I believe, I believe. But your belief is only shown whenever the trial hits your life. The process of testing your faith produces patience. That word patience is endurance. It's perseverance. It's constancy. Consistent responses. Being steadfast. You know, one of the highest compliments I think people can give is whenever they say, you know, he's so level-headed. Like, and the honest truth is, that's on the outside, and I'm glad the appearance is on the outside. But I am pursuing that on the inside because I want steadfastness with God. I want to be able to trust God with everything, even those cringe moments where you want to pull back and say, I don't know if I trust God with this. God is producing in you the endurance that you need. He's producing in you the consistency that you have to have to make it. That's what he's doing. James 1 and 4, he goes on, but let patience, he says, let this work. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking Nothing. Now, how many of us ever said, I wish I was perfect? I wish sometimes that I was perfect. Well, here's your answer. Let all things that you hate about the trial that you find yourself in have its perfect work. Another way he's saying, let it have its way. That you may be perfect and complete. Let God have his way in what's happening in your life that you may be made perfect and complete. And before you think, okay, if I have trials and gain patience, I'll be perfect. The word perfect here, the word complete here, it's not talking about being without error. It's not what he's talking about. So that, that pursuit is a myth. But what he is talking about is he's saying the proper word could be maturity. He's saying all of these things are bringing you to a place of maturity. Patience develops in response to painful and unpleasant experiences. And it's that patience that takes us to a place of maturity. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be mature, lacking nothing. What are signs of maturity? When you think about our society, what do you think of signs of maturity? I'll tell you what I think of. I think of that responsibility, taking on responsibility of adulthood. And different people take it on at different points in their life. I have peers, I'll turn 40 this year, I have peers that are still not fully adulting. That's a hashtag, right? Hashtag adulting. 
See, I'm so adult, I don't even know what the hashtags are. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. But I, I do. I have peers that they've not quite taken on the full responsibilities of adulthood yet. It means doing things that you don't want to do, but you must do. It means doing things like going to work instead of playing because you know going to work, although you don't want to do it, is going to pay the bills that you already owe. It's responsibility. Maturing. And he's saying all of this stuff that's happening in your life, if you'll allow it, if you'll trust God through the process, if you will persevere, it's building patience in you. And that patience as it builds up in you is going to bring you to a place of maturity where the things that five, ten years ago would knock you off of your faith pedestal and you'd go to God and you'd say, God, I need you to step in in the middle of this. You start looking and you say, you know what, God, I trust you've got this in your hand and I'm just going to trust you through this. And there'll be another trial that comes and that trial will be one that, Lord, I don't know about this one and God will take you through it and you look back one day and you say, I didn't even realize it, but some of the stuff that used to freak me out in life now is no big deal because God is working in the middle of my mess. The second thing that needs to change is what you ask for in a trial. James 1 and 5, he goes on, if any of you lacks wisdom, notice he, he goes straight from the joy of trials and building patience to maturity to if you lack wisdom. If you lack wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. He says what you need to ask for is wisdom. Now, did you notice what he did not tell us to ask for? An end to the trial. A miracle. A way out. An escape a removal of the trial. You don't need an escape. You don't need it to be over. You don't always need the quick miracle. But you always need wisdom. And he says, if you'll ask for wisdom, the Lord will give it, he'll give it liberally to you. And you think about sometimes we pray for the wrong thing. We're always praying, God, get this over with. God, take this out of my life. God, end this. When we should be saying, God, what do I need? What, what wisdom do I gain from this? What do I need to learn in this situation? Give me wisdom. But now what does wisdom look like? James three fourteen through 17, he draws a contrast. He says, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, that's a very harsh indictment over an individual. The reality is every one of us can be that individual. He says, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast, lie against the truth. This wisdom, this wisdom, the, the wisdom he just described, the bitter envy, the self-seeking, the selfish, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. It's earthly because it comes from a place of earthly wisdom. 
It's sensual because it will draw you in. And it's demonic because it allows the spirit of demons and the enemy to work in your life. It gives place to the devil. So he says, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. See, a lot of what we call wisdom is just earthly. It is envy cloaked in another motive. It is self-seeking cloaked in another motive. It is, I like to think of a politician. We're in voting season, so they're fair game. Politicians, they'll tell you everything they're going to do and do none of it. Why? They don't care about helping you. They care about keeping their job. That's why. It's self-seeking, cloaked in something else. Now, I'm using politicians, but the truth is every one of us can do this. We get selfish in certain seasons, and we're self-seeking, we're envious, and we try and cloak it in something else and hide it. We need to repent of that. We need to turn away from that. Envy cloaked in another motive. Being selfishly, and that's what self-seeking is, selfish ambition veiled just enough that we hide from others what's the true desire. He says, by contrast, wisdom from heaven is first pure. And that word pure just simply means it's clean. It's clean. It's out in the open. It's not hiding anything. It's pure. The second thing he says, it's peaceable. It's peaceful. It makes peace. It doesn't stir things up. It creates peace. The third thing is it's gentle. And what that word means is it's considerate. It considers others. It considers not just myself. When you only consider yourself, you're just being selfish. That's what you're considering is self. But if you consider others, you're being gentle. Fourth thing he says, willing to yield. Now, this is important. It means compliant. So what is he saying? He says, pray for wisdom from heaven. Pray for the thing that's going to make you pure. It's going to make you peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. Yield to the circumstance, the trial. Fifth thing he says, full of mercy. That's compassion. Having compassion for someone else. Sixth, without partiality. This word's interesting because it just means consistent. It just means being consistent. Wisdom from heaven is consistent. Seven, without hypocrisy. What does that mean? It means being genuine, being authentic, being real. Not hidden, and it's real. It's not covering something up. It's out in the open. And it's very peaceful. Heavenly wisdom is outwardly focused, while earthly wisdom is selfish. Think about that for just a moment. You think about trials. We think about ourselves and just trying to get the trial off of us. But in a way, James is saying, when that trial comes, have joy. And your response shouldn't be just to get out of the trial but to draw that trial in 
and say, what is God going to take out of my life with this? What is God going to do in this situation that's going to be for my good? It's looking at trials differently. Why would you need to ask for wisdom during your trials? I believe it's about changing the way we treat our trial. What I learned paddling on that river is that when I tried and I hit those moments where I had dead stops and I was turning around and it just seemed like the kayak was getting out of control, for the first day or two, probably the reason I'm sore, I would dig in and just try and get through it and beat the river into submission under my kayak. Guess who won? The river. But what I found is that whenever I hit those moments, if I just paid attention to what was happening and I made slight adjustments and I relaxed and watched where the river was trying to take me, not into dangerous situations, but if I watched where the current was trying to navigate me, I could just make slight corrections and I would get through it a whole lot faster without wearing myself out. And it's amazing. You think about trials. Trials do that same thing in our life. You can fight the trial all you want to, but if God has allowed the trial in your life, you're better off to sit back and say, God, I trust you, and I'm going to ride this out with you guiding me through this trial. What is God trying to do for my life through this current trial? Some of us try to control the trial. You think about that, that's like shouting at the storm to go away. That storm's going to pass. It may pass slowly, but it's going to go away. You just wasted all that breath and all that energy struggling with something that is just temporary. I'm reminded of the story of the disciples in the boat. They just fed, Jesus had just fed 5,000 miracle fishes and loaves. They get into the boat, they're crossing over Jesus, or not 5,000, it was a different miracle, excuse me. Anyway, he had just done a miracle. They got in the boat. They're crossing over. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. Storm comes. Disciples panic. Lord, how are you sleeping? Wake up. Help us. And he gets up. Most of us know the story. It's well, it's pretty famous. Jesus stands up and we're just speaking. He calms the waves and he calms the wind. But immediately he asked them, Where is your faith? Was, and I always looked at that and I thought, He was telling them, You get up and tell the storm to stop. What if he wasn't? What if he was saying, Where's your trust? That the storm is brought, but the storm's going to pass. The trial came, but if you'll trust me because I'm in the boat with you, that trial's going to pass. You're not going to perish in this one because I'm with you. Where is your faith? Because in a way, rejecting your trial that God has allowed in your life is rejecting God's work in your life. Rejecting your trial that God has allowed in your life is rejecting what God is trying to work in your life. And that's not really faith if you reject it. 
But if you have wisdom, you say, I'm willing to yield to this trial. I'm willing to let God take control and the result is in his hands. You let God take control of your life. That's faith. That's trusting. The third thing that needs to change is your faith. James 1, 6 through 8, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God only responds to faith. He only responds to faith. Hebrews 11 and 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I always looked at James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Hebrews 11, and I thought, well, if I just believe hard enough, we have Disney faith is what we have. If you wish upon a star, this is not talking about wishing and it's not talking about hoping. That is not what James is saying. James is saying, if you will ask in faith, and what asking in faith is this, it means just trusting God for the results. I've asked, but the results are up to him. You know, uh, our son, daughter, daughter's at the age now, where you go in a store, they want something, and they ask, can I have? No. No, we're not getting that today. They stomp their feet. Throw a fit. Can I have it? No. Just because you're doing that is not going to get you what you want. And it, it goes on. They try to control the outcome. Even though the answer has been no. Or if we haven't answered, they're trying to force. My son's at the age now where he's adult enough, he's trying to hammer in and, like, get us to do certain things. It's like, no, we're still the parents. You're going to be a big boy, but we're still the parents. And I'm going to have to pay them both for using them as examples in this sermon. But we do that to God. We ask, but really what we're asking is we're asking for a controlled outcome that we've decided was the right thing. That's not how trust with God works. It's asking and then leaving the results in his hands. There are several examples in Scripture where God deals with people who are double-minded. Several stories. One of those stories is the book of Joshua. Joshua instructs the people at the end of the book of Joshua to make a decision. Are you going to serve gods of the fathers that you had in Egypt? Are you going to serve the Lord who delivered you from Egypt? And he says this famous line that almost all of us can probably quote. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house. It's a, it's a real rousing thing to think about. 
But it's all about moving people into a place of decision where they don't go back and they're not standing between two options. Another example is in 1 Kings. The people of Israel had been caught up in the worship of Baal. They're being led that way by King Ahab and uh, Jezebel. And Elijah rebukes the people for not committing fully to the one true God or committing to the false God. It happens in 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? How long are you going to waver? How long are you going to be in the middle? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. They chose to stay in between. And he was trying to push them to a place, believe or don't believe, but don't waver between them. James said a double-minded person is unstable. They're unpredictable. They're unpredictable because one week it's going great. God's doing great things in their life. The next week they're ready to quit. They're questioning everything God is doing, everything God is allowing. They're unstable. And they don't realize it, but they're a danger to their own spiritual life, and they're a danger to anyone who has given them influence in their life. James 1 and 6, he says, But let him ask in faith with not doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, being shifted. Ask in faith has to do with that faith of trusting. It's not positive thinking. Musicians can come. It's not vivid imagery. It's not Disney's I wish I wish I, this thing tonight upon a starry night or whatever. It's not that. It's asking in faith during a trial. And asking in faith during that trial requires accepting from God an answer sometimes other than yes or no and even sometimes including painful, prolonged silence like Job. The whole book of Job, Job sought some answers. He heard from all of his friends. He had his wife tell him to just curse and give up. And it wasn't until finally Job got through to God, God decided to answer Job. And Job got an answer. And nowhere do we read that the answer was really satisfactory toward Job. God simply said, where were you? Who are you to tell me how to do my job? Asking in faith requires accepting what God deems is the right outcome. Faith is not an attempt to manipulate circumstances by thoughts or words. And faith is not denying the reality of pain. Some people do that. Oh, it's great. I've got nothing to worry about. Faith reflects continuing confidence in the faithfulness of God that he's for you. Because here's the truth. You can trust God to carry you through life's trials. But you have to choose to trust Him. 
You can trust that God will take your mess and turn it into something that will help you in your life. But before you know the outcome, you have to trust him. God will take all of the pain and the things in life that are horrible and make it something glorious for him and beneficial for you. But you have to choose to trust him. As long as you go back and forth and you struggle between you being in control, God being in control, you'll never have peace. And the joy that you're pursuing will always elude you because you keep wrestling control out of God's hands. So you have to get to a place where you just say, God, I will trust you. I will trust you. I'm going to let it happen the way you want it to happen. This trial may go on for the rest of my life, but you have it here in my life for a purpose. And I'm going to count it joy that I'm in this trial. I wonder if you'd stand with me. to take an opportunity to gather around the front and pray and seek the presence of the Lord. If you're here and you're uncomfortable with getting too close to others, I invite you, you can stay in your seat and make that a place of prayer. But I want to pray. I want to pray that God would help us. We need to see our trials differently. We need to understand God's working in those trials. And we need to get our faith to a place where we trust him and say God you've got control of this trial I'm putting it in your hand Lord you see the people that are facing trials God you see what people are facing in their lives I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ God that you would help us Lord to get over wavering to get over being double minded but to really trust you God, even with all of the mess and the hurt, the heartache, the pain, the struggle of things that come in our life, Lord. God, that right in the middle of it, we'd trust you and we quit trying to take back control. We say, God, even this bad thing that you're allowing to happen is going to be for my good. It's going to change my life. It's going to mature me. It's going to develop me to the purpose to the person of purpose that you would have me to be. God, I'm going to trust you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why don't you take a moment and seek the presence of the Lord. Let him speak to you. God, we need wisdom in our trials. We need wisdom, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Oh.